Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. I've, different events recently have, I guess it means I'm getting old too, reminiscing and thinking about uh, the first time I ever preached. It was 19 years ago, right before Brother Tom moved to Zebulun. He asked me to go there and preach on a Wednesday night. And uh, I was thinking of a text, and what came to my mind was this. The great commandment to God's preachers is to preach Christ. Preach Christ and Him crucified. And the thought came to my mind, well, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is he? If we're to preach him, who is he? Many people, hundreds, thousands, millions, how many ever, this morning are speaking of this man Jesus. They're preaching Jesus. Well, who is he? Who is he? Like Brother Henry said so many times, who is he? What did he do? Why did he do it? And where is he now? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, who does the Lord say he is? That'll answer every question. Who's he say he is? He is exactly who he says he is. And when our Lord preached his very first public message, he told us who he is. And this is in Luke chapter 4. This is when he preached his very first public message. He'd just been tempted of the devil in the wilderness. In verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Well, wouldn't you like to heard that? The Word, reading the Word. God, reading the Word of God. He read, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, I, you, just, you see this picture. The Lord read this a very clear prophecy of the Messiah, and he sat down, and everyone's looking at him. And this is the first thing that he tells them who he is. He is the promised Messiah. He's no mere man. He's the promised Messiah. Look at verse 21. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. He's the Messiah. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? No, he's not Joseph's son. He's the son of God, the son of Mary. He's not Joseph's son. Our Lord Jesus had no human father. So he didn't partake in Adam's guilt and Adam's nature. He's God. Clothed in human flesh, he's the God-man. This is the one that's been promised and pictured from Genesis 3 all the way on. This is the God-man. He's no mere man. He's the promised Messiah. Secondly, he told them he's no mere miracle worker. Look at verse 23. 
And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Now, our Lord did so many miracles. He helped the needy everywhere he went. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He gave the deaf their hearing. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. But our Lord's purpose on this earth was not to amaze people with miracles. And we'll see what his actual mission was when he came to earth here in a minute. It's the mission of redemption. That's why he came. He didn't come to amaze people with these miracles. You know, I call them these party tricks all the time. That's what people are interested in. The miracles were to give evidence to people that this man is the Son of God. He is, he's the Messiah. He's fulfilling all these prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. They were to give evidence of who he was, not to just to amaze people with the miracles. And that's exactly what's wrong with the Pentecostal movement and the healer movement and these things today. Their goal is to amaze people with miracles, to amaze people with evidences of the Spirit. Never the salvation of sinners. And that's the greatest miracle man will know, the salvation of sinners. This was not why our Lord worked these miracles. He's no mere miracle worker. He's the God of election. He's the sovereign Savior. Look at verse 24. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now, the Lord knows very well he's going to hear this objection. Why don't you do the miracles here at home that you do in other places? Why don't you work these miracles here and help people of your hometown like you did in all these other places? And our Lord uses two well-known examples to show us he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And those objects of mercy are always the undeserving. They're always the most unlikely people who receive mercy. They're always sinners. They never deserve it. They're always sinners. And the first example he used was the time of Elijah. In the time of Elijah, there was a long famine, three and a half years, no rain. And there were no social programs there to, you know, prop poor people up and help them and so forth. You can imagine how many starving widows that there were in Israel. No support, no means of support. And God didn't send his prophet to one of those Jewish widows. Not one. He passed them all by and sent Elijah to a Gentile widow. And you remember the story. She fed Elijah. She gave him the last of, she used the last of her meal and the last of her cruise of oil. She was going to make a cake for her and her son and just die. And Elijah said, make me a cake first. Make me a little cake first. And she did. She fed him. Her cruise of oil and her barrel of meal never ran dry. That whole time of famine, she was well fed. Only one, a Gentile widow. In the time of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. The Lord passed by every one of them. Let every one of them die in their disease and sent his prophet to a Gentile leper. Boy, not just any Gentile. This man was a Syrian, a hated 
Syrian, who at that time had the thumb pressed down on Israel, had Israel under his boot. But not just any Syrian, the general of the Syrian army, Naaman, second in command in all of Syria, healed of his leprosy. God sent his prophet to that unlikely, undeserving man and healed him, passed all those Jewish lepers by. And our Lord told this story, used these two illustrations to tell us this. God saves whom he will. Now, he saves sinners, but he saves whom he will. And that never makes a sinner say, well, that's not fair. A sinner hears that, and you know what that makes a sinner do? Cry for mercy. Lord, you save sinners. Save me. I beg you, save me. It makes a self-righteous angry, but not a sinner. And that's what happened in, in, in here in our Lord's teaching. It made the self-righteous angry. And here's what they found out. The Lord Jesus is not a God, little g, that man can control. Look at verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him under the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. You know, this Jesus that people preach today is a Jesus that man can control. You make him do this for you. That's not the Lord Jesus of the Bible. Men can't control him. Now, who is it that the Lord Jesus said he is? Well, from his text, and this is what he read is in Isaiah 61. Turn back there to Isaiah 61. And let's see who the Lord Jesus says he is. Who does he say he is? In Isaiah 61, first, the Lord Jesus Christ is a preacher. He's that prophet that was promised to Israel. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Now, the Lord Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. He, in, in, he's qualified by the Holy Spirit, to preach. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. Of course he had the Spirit without measure. He's one with the Spirit. They're they're one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're one. Of course he has a Spirit without measure. But the word he uses here is anointed. He's anointed me. And the, the word means qualified. But when we hear the word anointed in the Old Testament... Kings and priests were the only people who were anointed with oil in the Old Testament. And that's a, the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Well, Christ was anointed the king priest. And the king priest, what did he do? He came preaching. He's prophet, priest, and king. When we just read there in Luke 4, verse 14, that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee because he had the Spirit without measure. Well, what did he come to Galilee to do? What was his purpose there? It wasn't to work miracles, was it? He came to preach. The Father anointed the Son and sent him on a mission to preach. Well, to preach what? To preach good tidings. To preach good tidings, the good news of God's love for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. To preach the good news of salvation from sin. Now, I know this, the world's not necessarily interested in that, but sinners are. 
salvation from sin. He came to preach peace with God through the blood of his cross. He came to preach the sacrifice of Christ, not animal sacrifices, the sacrifices of Christ that enables God to be just and justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He came to preach righteousness. Not righteousness through our obedience to the law. Righteousness through his righteousness imputed to our account. He, that's good news. He came to preach good tidings. Well, to whom? Who did he come to preach to? Isaiah says the meek. Luke says the poor. They're saying the exact same thing. This word meek in Isaiah 61, it means poor and humble and afflicted. Well, why would the Lord come to preach the gospel to the meek, the poor, the humble, the afflicted? Because the gospel is only good news to the poor, to the poor. And when we say poor, I don't mean poor like, you know, I'm a little short on the electric bill this month. You know, I got some of it. I got most of it. But don't, I'm a little short. That's not what this word poor means. It means bankrupt. It means having nothing to pay. That there's no goodness in them. There's no soundness in them. They're poor. They're bankrupt. And they're meek. You know who's really meek and humble? Someone who's in public and naked with no covering. That person's humble. They're meek. They're humbled. This is who the Lord came to preach good tidings to, the poor, the bankrupt, those with nothing, those who are naked before God with no covering, totally depraved sinners. The Lord came to preach to the meek because the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, is good news to the poor and to the meek. That's who the Lord came to preach to, and that's who he came to save, the poor and the meek. The Lord Jesus Christ is that prophet. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is the great physician. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, I love this. As much as I want you to believe the gospel that I preach, I told the folks at home a few weeks ago, I love to hear Tom Harding preach. I just love it. I, every time I hear him, I love to hear him preach. And by the time Tom's done preaching, he's leaning way up over here because he's wanting to reach out and grab you and, oh, he wants you to believe what he's preaching. Danny, as far as I can go, I, our Lord didn't just preach words to people. He didn't just preach words to the meek, to the poor, to the afflicted. He touched them and healed all their afflictions. He gave them a covering that covered their nakedness. He gave them riches beyond man's wildest imagination. The Lord is nigh unto them that have a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And these who are brokenhearted have a heart that's broken over sin. It's not just that they're sad. It's not hard to find people who are sad. I mean, maybe it's always been that way, but in, in this day and time where we have all these conveniences and wealth and blessings... I really think people are more sad today than almost ever. It's, it's shocking. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone whose heart is 
broken over sin. Well, how does the Lord heal the brokenhearted? By taking our disease into himself and giving us his health. That's how he heals the brokenhearted. Our great physician comes and he binds up that heart that's broken over sin with his own blood. The Lord Jesus suffered and he died to heal the brokenhearted. What did Isaiah say? How are we healed? With his stripes, with his suffering, with his death, we're healed. He's the great physician. The blood of Christ cleanses every wound. The blood of Christ is the balm for every sickness. And here's why we need Christ, the great physician. We don't need just anybody with a shingle. We don't need a quack who hangs up a doctor's shingle. Because you can't repair the broken heart. You can't prop up and do a remodel job on our nature. We need a new one. We need a new heart and a new nature. Only Christ, the great physician, can do a transplant and give a new heart and a new nature. And that's what he does. He's the great physician. Third, the Lord Jesus Christ is the deliverer. He sent me, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Isaiah could prophesy that Israel one day would be set free from Babylon. At the time he was writing, they were in bondage to Babylon. And he could prophesy, one day you'll be set free from Babylon. Christ came and proclaimed, his people are free. Now, President Lincoln, remember during the Civil War, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation that declared all the slaves are free. The day after that happened in the Deep South, guess what? Not one slave was set free. They were still in bondage and slavery. And the president had to finish that war. He had to send his army into the heart of Dixie and set those slaves free. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He came where those slaves were and he set his people free. He won the war. Now the Jews, they're going to be set free from Babylon. And you know what? They're going to go back into captivity to somebody else again because they're going to fall into idolatry and things and they're going to go back into captivity again. The people that Christ sets free are eternally free. If the Son shall make you free, You're free indeed. Now, these people are held captive. They're held captive in prison. They're held captive by sin. They're imprisoned to the law. They're held captive by the power of Satan. Well, how on earth did they end up in prison? You know, I look at TV shows. You know, they show about life behind bars, and I think, I don't know how that guy ended up there. It looks to me like he needs to stay. How did he end up in prison? How did you end up captive? In Adam. When Adam sinned, all men became captives. We became captives to a sinful nature. We became bound to a law that we cannot keep. We were put under the power of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. I don't call on men to make a decision for Jesus for this reason. You're not free to make a decision. You're held captive to a nature. You're bound to a nature that will not and cannot Come to Christ. Luke says the Lord came to set free those that are bruised, 
bruised and mangled by the fall. Imagine someone falling off of a cliff. I've watched these people the other day just for a few minutes on TV, cliff diving. It looked like a dangerous activity to me because they were diving into the pretty blue water. But at the edge of that, there was these huge jagged rocks. And you have one little slip, you're dead. Well, imagine somebody falling off there and laying down there on the rocks. And I, I'm a real good guy. I go down there and say, well, if you get yourself to the hospital, we'll fix you up. These, I know it hurts, but we fix you up. There was Linda there at the side of the road. Well, Linda, if you get to the hospital, we'll, we'll fix you up. That man's incapable of going to the hospital. He's bruised and mangled by the fall. He's held captive on those rocks by a broken body. Well, then how will the Lord set his people free? By being taken prisoner for them. That's how that mob came to take him. They bound him and led him away. He stood before Caiaphas bound. He stood before Pilate bound. He stood there in our place, the place of his people. We're captives to sin. The Lord Jesus was made to be sin for his people. And put away that sin with the sacrifice of himself. Set us free from sin. We're held captives to Satan. Try getting away from him. The Lord Jesus came and crushed Satan's head at Calvary. He can't touch you anymore. He's a roaring lion. He can scare you half to death, but he can't touch you. He's on God's leash. We're held captive to the law. The law that we cannot keep. The law that demands our death because of a broken law, disobedience. The Lord Jesus came as a man, born of a woman. Remember I said, Joseph wasn't his father. He didn't have a human father. He did not partake in Adam's sin and kept God's law in every jot and every tittle. He, not only did he keep the law, he magnified it and made it honorable. Set us free from the law. He kept it for us. We're held captive to death. Whatever activities it is that we're doing. You know what we're doing? We're just waiting to die. My good friend Earl Wooten tells me all the time, Frank, nobody makes out of this thing alive. (laughs) Unless the Lord returns, nobody makes out of this thing alive. The Lord Jesus came and set his people free from the fear of death by dying for us as our substitute. Took the sting away and you'll never die. Not eternally you won't. He has led captivity captive. That's how he set his people free. He took the punishment that his people deserve and gave us his freedom. We are free in Christ. We saw my daughter Savannah wanted to watch Roots. You know, many of you are old enough to have watched it on TV when it was on. And she ordered it on Amazon. I asked her, what on earth do you want to... This is the saddest movie you'll ever see. What do you want to watch this thing for? And they showed pictures, you know, of the life of a slave. I don't know what it was we were watching the other day, but they showed real pictures of the housing and the clothing and the conditions that slaves were in. I know a few pictures exist, but this was supposedly a picture. Those... Shack is, is, is not even the appropriate word. What those slaves lived in, I mean, the cabins that they showed in roots that those slaves were living in are a palace compared to what those slaves lived in. They didn't have shoes. 
They had little pieces of board they strapped to their feet. Can you imagine the joy when they were set free? Free! Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus had bled, and there's remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. I'm afraid that far too often the joy of freedom in Christ escapes us. Free because he's redeemed us once for all. Which brings me to my fourth point. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the Redeemer. Look at verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, what Isaiah is referring to here is the year of Jubilee. Now, according to the Old Testament law, every seventh year was the Lord's year. It was to be a year of Sabbath, a year of rest for the people and for the land. But the seventh of those seventh years, this 50th year, was a special year. It was the year of Jubilee. And Christ is our Jubilee. Now, in the year of Jubilee, four things happened. First, people who sold themselves into bondage because they couldn't pay their debt. They had no way to pay it. The only way they could pay their debt was to go into bondage to the third person that they owed money to. In the year of Jubilee, everyone who sold themselves into bondage was free. No conditions to meet. They went out free. That's what we just talked about. Christ is our Jubilee. We're free in him. Second, in the year of Jubilee, all property that was lost as a result of debts was restored. So maybe someone couldn't pay their debt, but they had enough property, you know, the value in the property to pay their debt, and they gave someone the property. In the year of Jubilee, they got that family property back. Everything. Christ is our Jubilee. Everything we lost in the first Adam is restored in Christ, the second Adam. Third, in the year of Jubilee... All debts were canceled, slates wiped clean. The sin of God's elect is canceled because Christ paid the debt in full. Now, I work for a wholesaler, and the sad truth of life is that every year we write off bad debt. We give product to someone, and then they do not pay us. At the end of the year... We've gone after them legally. We've done everything we can do. You know, maybe they skip the country. They declare bankruptcy, whatever. We know we're never going to pay for this. And you've got to write it off as bad debt. And it's off the books. The books are clean. It's off the books. Not on the balance sheet. It's gone. Somebody looks at our books. They don't see that debt anymore. In the back of my mind, they owe us money. That's not the way God Wipe the slate clean for his people. He didn't write it off to bad debt. In the back of his mind, he knows, oh, they're sinners. They, the debt is paid in full by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our jubilee. And last, in the year of jubilee, the year of jubilee was a year of rest. And that's Christ, our jubilee. We can rest in him. 
This is the good news. There's no more working to you know, attempt to establish a righteousness that you cannot establish. There's no more trying to prop up a dead body. The work of redemption is finished. The debt is paid. Righteousness is established. Righteousness has been imputed. Just rest. Rest in Christ. He is the year of Jubilee. But the phrase, the acceptable year of the Lord, speaks of a specific day. The day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Well, Frank, how do you know that? Lord hadn't come back yet, has he? We're still here preaching the gospel of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's the day of salvation. Then call on him. Call on him. He came to proclaim the the day of salvation. More than that, he came to proclaim he is the way of salvation. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the redeemer of his people. Fifth, the Lord Jesus Christ is the judge. He came to to announce, to preach the day of vengeance of our God. Now we know our Lord said, The Father judgeth no man. He's committed all judgment unto the Son. The Father hath given him authority to execute judgment. He's the judge. And one day he'll judge the quick and the dead. He will be the judge. And he will be the standard by which we're judged. The question is this. Do you believe him? You know, the, the question is not, are you as good as him? I mean, because you, know, you, you have to be as, as righteous and holy as he is to be accepted. Well, the question is not, are you as good as him? Of course you're not. You're in Adam. Of course you're not. The question is, do you believe him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Are you found in him? That's why Paul said, oh, that I may win Christ and be found in him. That's the question. He that believeth not should be damned. And if you do not believe the gospel that we preach, you will be damned. And I don't say that because I preach it. I say it because this is God's way of salvation. This is God's gospel. The gospel that God's Son came preaching. But the main meaning of this day of vengeance is the day that the sins of God's elect were put away. That's the main meaning of this phrase. You know how the year of Jubilee began? It began with the day of atonement. The year of Jubilee, everything that we said about that year of Jubilee began with the day of blood and sacrifice for sins. In order for us to have peace, in order for us to have freedom and rest and salvation and have our debts wiped away, vengeance against our sin must be taken out because God's holy. And at Calvary, God's vengeance against the sins of his people was poured out upon his son. God made all the sins of his people to meet on his blessed, holy son. And God the Father plunged the sword of justice into the heart of his son, the sinner's substitute. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Men didn't put him to death. The father took out his vengeance against sin upon his son and put him to death to satisfy his holiness and his holy justice. That's the only way 
captives can go free. And that is a comfort to people who are sinners. Which brings me to my sixth point. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the comforter. Look here at the end of verse 2. To comfort all that mourn. To point unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the comforter. And just like I said a minute ago, I can preach comfort. I can tell you where comfort's found. Christ the preacher, the redeemer, the savior, the deliverer, he doesn't just offer words of comfort. He doesn't just preach words of comfort. He is our comfort. He applies comfort. He sends God the Holy Spirit who is the comforter. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He comforts God's people by applying the blood of Christ and showing us the things of Christ. The Lord says he comforts those that mourn over sin. It's not, again, this is not just a general sadness. It's over sin. He says he, he will point unto them that mourn in Zion. Well, why does he say in Zion? What's so special about Zion? The mercy seat's there. That's what's so special about it. He comforts those who mourn over sin at his throne of grace where the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled. True comfort can only be found in the sacrifice of Christ for our sin. He gives them beauty for ashes. You know how these Jews, they mourn in sackcloth and ashes. They just piled up these ashes on, on their head. And the Lord takes away those ashes, the ashes of death and burnt ugliness. He takes those ashes away and crowns us with his righteousness. He gives us the oil of joy for our mourning. You know, when people in that day mourned, they, they didn't wash their face. They didn't try to make their face, you know, look better. The, the ladies, you know, didn't put on makeup and stuff. They just left it as it was. Just, you know, they're mourning. Our Lord come, he washes the face and he puts some oil on it to make the face shine and, and be supple and, and beautiful. Makes the skin to shine. And he takes that scowl of mourning off of our face. Takes that furrowed brown, makes it smooth. Puts a pleasant look on our face and a song in our heart. Last week, Janet and I were at a social gathering. There's a number of people there and we were talking and visiting, and um, I don't even know how this happened, but I found myself off to the side alone. And my mind got a million miles away, and I was standing there a million miles away, just thinking. And, and I looked up, and my daughter Holly was across the room, and she looked at me, and she went. <laughs> and for her sake, I can, you know... When the Lord gives us oil of joy for mourning, it's not fake. Because he puts a song in our heart. The oil of joy. This oil of joy, he had the spirit without measure, is the overflow from him. The oil of joy, the Holy Spirit. Puts a pleasant look on our face because he puts a song in our heart. And he trades that spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. What on earth is he talking about? This garment of praise. It's his robe of righteousness. Look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me 
with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as the bride adorneth herself with her jewels. This is a beautiful robe, the robe of righteousness. You know, those who are meek, they're naked in public, no covering. He doesn't just give you a little, you know, rag to cover yourself. It's a robe of righteousness, like a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. He comes to marry his bride. Surely, surely, that will give us an attitude of praise. Who he is, what he's done for us, and what he's done in us. And that brings me to my last point. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the planter of his church. That they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Christ is the one. I saw an article the other day in our newspaper locally. This fellow was coming to be, they didn't use the word pastor, rector or something of this, whatever church denomination it was there in town. And apparently this place had dwindled down to nothing and they got this guy to come in because he's a church builder. He's a church planner. Well, I don't know about that. But I do know this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the planter of his church. He plants his trees with roots down deep in him and he makes them flourish in the courts of our God and they'll never be uprooted. The word trees in the original is oaks, strong oaks that shall not be moved because their roots are down deep on the rock Christ Jesus. So who is he? He's the prophet. He's the great physician. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the judge. He's the comforter. And he's the planter. He's all to his church. Well, let me leave you with this question. Why? Why did the Father make Christ to be everything to his people? At the end of verse 3, that he might be glorified. That's why. That's why God does everything he does, that the Son will be glorified. He does what he does to the praise of the glory of the precious name of his dear Son, And through eternity, we're going to spend that entire time in eternity praising his matchless name because of how he put our sin away, because of who he is, because of his person and his work. And it'll take eternity. It'll take eternity to sing his praises because his glory is infinite. His glory is infinite. Our sin was infinite. And his glory is infinite in being everything to his people. Can't think of a better ending than that, so we'll end there.